Well, I want to take a minute to say hi and welcome to all of you joining us from Quakertown. And uh, I do have to say, have you noticed the last three weeks they've given me a swivel stool? Have you noticed? And have you noticed how composed I've been and restrained I've been? You know, giving somebody with severe ADD a swivel stool is not a smart thing. But they give me one. I haven't spun around too many times. I just want you to know I'm, I'm trying to refrain. I just kind of do the little rock thing here for a little bit. But I have a swivel stool, and I appreciate that. Thank you, whoever got it. Well, we're in a series that we're calling Reality Check. And the reason we're doing the series is because we live in a world of fake news. We live in a world of misinformation and spin and pretending and perspective. And in the midst of all of that confusion, how can we determine what's real? How can we determine what's true so that we can navigate life accordingly? So last week we started by looking at our relationship with God. And we said that our relationship with God is all about proxy reunion. It's all about God providing a substitute to pay all the debt that we owed. And then God wants us to become part of the team to live out that proxy reunion with other people. And this morning we come to the topic of community. So we've kind of looked at our relationship with God. And this morning we're going to kind of look at our relationship with each other. And in case you haven't noticed, there are some difficulties in our relationship with God, and there are real difficulties in our relationship with other people, and we need a reality check, because we live in a world that gives us lots of advice and lots of help how to live with one another. Well, how do we step back from the misinformation, spin, and fake news, and say, but how do we really live in community? That's what we're going to talk about today. But I want to start by talking about this curious combination that you find in the Bible. I'm not sure you've ever noticed, but as you read through the Bible, you discover that things that we wouldn't expect to be linked are often linked. And, people that in our, and, and things that are often inseparably linked in our minds in the Bible are separated. Well, I've got a couple passages here from Matthew's Gospel, and I'm going to read through it, and I'm going to ask you if you can discover these things that the Bible always links but we have a tendency to separate. Here's the first one from Matthew 22. Jesus is out doing his teaching thing, and eventually a religious leader comes. Uh, you know, one of the people that have studied the Old Testament. And I guess this person comes to test Jesus, to make sure he's on the up and up, make sure he's orthodox, that, you know, he can tick off all the boxes, he knows what's going on. So he comes up to Jesus and asks a question. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, to a Jewish religious leader, the law referred to the first five books of the Old Testament. That would refer to the Pentateuch. And so Jews today would still refer to the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch. And so this religious leader comes to Jesus and says, we've got all this information in the Bible uh, telling us this rule, this rule, that rule, this regulation. Well, What's the most important one? If I have to forget one, which one can I forget? If I can get rid of a whole bunch, what do I have to keep? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So Jesus says, when all else falls away, don't forget this one. This is the number one. Love God with all that you are. Now, what does love mean? Well, love means that that the person you love, their priorities go ahead of yours, their interests go ahead of yours. And so Jesus says, 
We need to put God first in our lives. Now, the Bible doesn't call us to do that so our lives will be miserable. The Bible calls us to do that so that our lives will be filled and abundant because God made us. He knows how life should go best. And so he says, well, live in step with God. That's the most important commandment. But then before the religious leader can speak again, Jesus isn't finished. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, wait a minute. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see what Jesus links together? Love God and love people. It's not either or, it's both and. Now, I have the sneaking suspicion that you have a tendency to separate them, right? And you say, well, yeah, loving God, that's kind of hard, but loving people, that's impossible. Uh, I talk to a, a fair number of business people, even pastors and people in church, and sometimes they say things like this. Work would be a breeze if it wasn't for people. Church would be fun if it wasn't for all the people. Wait a minute. Loving God, loving people, they go together inseparably. We want to separate them. The Bible says can't separate them. Well, if you turn back a few pages in Matthew's gospel, it even gets more serious. In the most famous sermon ever preached, right, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Lord's Prayer, right? So most of you memorize that. So here's the Lord's Prayer. And just in case you've missed it, let me show you that that curious combination appears in the middle of the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Say a little word, as. Not, Lord, forgive me my debts and help me to forgive my debtors. Lord, forgive me my debts. You know I can't forgive my debtors. Forgive me my debts as, forgive my sins as I'm forgiving the sins of those who sin against me. I'll tell you what, if God forgives our sins according to that plan, we're in trouble. What's Jesus doing? And he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I suspect at that point Jesus realizes that the disciples are quickly going to get rid of the as. I'm just guessing. He's probably thinking, yeah, they, they probably missed that. Or they heard it, and now they're forgetting it already. So after the Lord's Prayer, he comes back to the as. Here's what he says. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. And right now you should say, "Uh uh-oh. Well, what's going on? Forgive us our, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And if you don't forgive other people when they sin against you, God's not going to, what? I mean, we're in a world of trouble. Well, let me try to explain it a little bit. Uh, I don't want you feeling too guilty and convicted for too long. It works like this. How do you know that the tree is an apple tree? Well, you know it's an apple tree because one day you're, you pick apples from it. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you have really been forgiven by God, you will forgive other people. If you really have the roots of your life sucking in the nutrients of the gospel, you will be sending out fruit that tastes like the gospel. 
Now, that may not be a perfect one-to-one correspondence, but you can't experience the reality of the gospel and not live out the gospel to some degree. That's what Jesus is saying. So he's giving us a little quiz, a little test. How good are you at forgiving people when they sin against you? That's a pretty good indication of whether or not you're drawing on the resources of the gospel in your life. Because if you're drawing on the resources of forgiveness, you will be sending out forgiveness. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, that kind of raises a question. Why are we so bad at that? You admit you're bad at that, right? Why are we so bad at that? I know the reason. Because same reason I'm bad at it. It has to do with scoreboards. We're so bad at forgiving others, even though we've been forgiven, because of scoreboards. How many of you are really good at loving God? How many of you are really good at loving people? If you're all really good at that, we can just end here. Okay, no, nobody's really good at it. So, well, what, what's the scoreboard problem? Have you noticed we've been having some great scoreboards in Philadelphia? Uh, let me show you a few. <laughs> Five to one the other day. Now, here's the question. Now, after the 7 nothing loss, which team shows up this afternoon? That, I'm hoping it's the second team. If not, at, at least let's bloody curl. Uh, I guess we shouldn't say that in church, right? Sorry, sorry. Five to one. That's a great scoreboard. How about this one from last night? 130 points the Sixers scored. Wow. And Embiid wasn't even playing, right? 130 to 103. Uh, how about this one? Bring back a little memory. Ah, uh, Villanova 79, Michigan 62. Ah, uh, Villanova 7, NCAA champs. Villanova. But the best scoreboard of all. Yeah, Super Bowl scoreboard 41 to 33. Uh, just to keep the joy in our lives, I'm kind of asking the building team if in place of our old missional, relational, transformational, we're going to put the Eagles' final score from the Super Bowl on the balcony. What do you think? That way we come in every week, we'll be happy, right? Well, wait a minute. How do scoreboards work? Well, scoreboards work like this. You look at a scoreboard, you always know who's winning. So if you go to a baseball game, you look at a scoreboard, you know how many pitches. You get anywhere over 50 today, you have pitchers going to be pulled. You look at a scoreboard, how many pitches he's thrown, how fast it was, what kind of pitch it was, what the score is, how many hits. You look at a scoreboard, you know who's winning, you know the situation. That's how scoreboards work. But we have internal scoreboards too, don't we? We see something and we kind of keep an internal scoreboard. We wouldn't say it out loud because then people would hate us or wouldn't think too nicely about us. So we keep them internal. So let me share with you a, a couple scoreboards. Uh, some of you are Facebook folks, Instagram folks. So uh, have you ever uh, gone to somebody's Facebook homepage and you notice they have a new picture? And the picture came from last night. And it's a picture of this person and their spouse and a giant piece of lemon cake from Del Frisco's restaurant in between them. And they post something like, great date last night. And you say, thank God that that person had such a good night at Del Frisco's and are eating lemon cake, right? <laughs> no, you don't. Here's what you do. Must be nice to have your in-laws live nearby and watch your kids so you can spend the evening in Philadelphia, right? Must be nice to have so much money you can take your spouse, go into the city and drop 150, 200 bucks on dinner. It must be nice to be so thin and not have to worry about your weight. You can eat that giant piece of lemon cake for dessert. That's what you think, right? Scoreboard. You're creating the scoreboard. 
How about this one? You go to somebody else's homepage and you see a picture of the bluest water you've ever seen. And there's a beach in between the water and this breakfast table, kind of linen, napkins, breakfast there. And the caption says, picture from our balcony this morning. And you take a minute to pray and thank God that he's so good to your friends that they're able to have a vacation like that. No, no, no. You say, how incompetent can you be, right? You're blowing all that money to go away. You could give that money to further what Jesus is doing in the world, right? I'm committed to continuing what Jesus started. I'm not blowing all that money on myself. Going to scoreboards, right? Um, or how about this one? You get a phone call early in the week, maybe it's Monday, and it's one of your friends, and your friend says something like this. Hey, I really hate to bother you, but I've got to get to the airport on Friday. Just wondering, could you do me a favor? Could you run me to the airport? You say, okay, uh, what time's your flight? And uh, your friend says, 4.30. And you're thinking, what are two of those each day? <laughs> Let's pray for the second. Uh, is that morning? or? Oh, no, we're talking morning. Oh, no. But it's your friend, you know, and so you say, oh, sure, I'll be able to help you out. And so you get up like at 2, might as well just stay up, right? Take him to the airport. But a couple weeks later, you have to go out of town. So now it's reciprocation time, right? So you call, and you know your buddy's going to be able to help you out. So you call and say, hey, yeah, payday's coming, right? It's time for you to pay up. I've got to go out of town in two weeks. Can you get me to the airport? What time's your flight? 7.30? He says, oh, you know what? I really have a busy morning that morning, and... You know, I, I don't want to disturb my wife and kids. It's a whole big thing. Sorry, I can't do it. You're going to have to find somebody else. And you say, really? Really? I can't wait till you ask me to do something for you again, right? Now, you don't say this because you want to be nice, right? But inside you're thinking, I can't wait till you need me again because I'm going to tell you. Remember when you, because when you help somebody else, they're supposed to help you. That's how scoreboards work, right? You, they, you become in their debt, they're in your debt, you kind of reciprocation, we keep scoreboards with spouses and kids, with in-laws and friends, with bosses and co-workers, with team members, employees, with small group members and church communities. We have scoreboards all over the place, right? And here's the reality. As long as you have a scoreboard, you'll never be able to live in community. If we live with a scoreboard, we're not going to be able to love and forgive. Do you notice how those two concepts go together in the verses we read? Love God, love people. Well, since people are always messing up and we're always messing up, that love thing has to go with the forgiving thing because we're flawed and we usually sin against other people. They sin against us. So if we're going to love people, we've got to forgive people. And if we're going to love God, we've got to love people. Here's what Paul says about scoreboards. Right in the middle of that love chapter. It's kind of interesting. Here's what Paul says. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Paraphrase. Love has no scoreboard. But if you're like me, you can't help but having a scoreboard. I mean, I can try to not have one. I have one. And you're on it. <laughs> okay, so to kind of make those principles real, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little case study. So I'm going to kind of tell you a story about somebody in the Bible. And since it's a miserable day out, you can actually read the chapters later this afternoon. These chapters are found at the end of the book of Genesis. There are actually 13 chapters, right? You're not doing anything today. 
beginning in chapter 37 all the way through chapter 50, what I'm going to do is kind of skate through the highs and lows of this guy's life. And as I'm telling you the story and teasing out the twists and turns, I want you to do your normal scoreboard keeping for this other guy. And we're going to say, how in the world did he not keep the scoreboard because we've kept it and we wouldn't be like him? How can we do it? Our case study is going to be of a guy named Joseph. And so I'm just going to tell you the Joseph story, and you're going to keep score as I go through. In Genesis chapter 37, we're introduced to Joseph, and he's already 17 years old. Joseph is the favorite son of his father, especially of his parents, and he's got a whole herd of other brothers. But Joseph is by far the favorite. And the father isn't too shy about letting everybody know Joseph is the favorite. Now, some of you are favorite children, and so, you know, it feels good, right? I, I don't know. I was the worst of the kids. But, uh, but if you are the favorite kid, you kind of know, and you like that a little bit. And, and How do your brothers and sisters feel about you being the favorite? Uh, they don't like it too much, right? Well, Joseph's father was not really a great dad. He communicates his favor and Joseph being number one son by giving him a special coat, a power coat. So Joseph wears this coat. None of the other brothers get a coat. Joseph gets a coat. And Joseph loved wearing the coat. He liked to kind of parade around, dance around in front of his brothers. His brothers hated the coat. Well, uh, Joseph, soon after he gets the coat, has a couple dreams. And he interprets the dreams like this. Okay, I see what's happening. One day, all my brothers are going to come and bow down to me. And they're going to say, Brother Joseph, your wish is our command. And so he, he thinks his brother's going to be happy about this dream. So he goes and shares with his, hey, guys, where do you hear this really cool dream I had? Uh, gather around here. Let me tell you. I had this dream, and I become not just daddy's favorite son. I become, all, I become your ruler. And you all come before me, and you bow down and say, Brother Joseph, your wish is our command. And the brothers love the, they hate the story, right? They're looking for an opportunity to kind of bring some harm into Joseph's life. Daddy knows that the brothers aren't too happy, so he keeps Joseph away from the brothers for the most part. Well, eventually the brothers are out doing work far away, and Dad thinks they may be gold-bricking out there, and so he's got to do some reconnaissance. He stupidly sends Joseph to check up on the brothers. He says, okay, Joseph, here's the plan. Go see if your brothers are really working or if they're bumming out there. Come back and give me a report. Yes, Dad. Puts on his power coat, finds the brothers. The brothers see him coming in the power coat. They say, oh, here comes our brother. Maybe we should bow down. <laughs> no, they don't. They say, uh, let's kill him. Oh, no joke. Let's kill him. And the other brother says, kill him, Really? But then we don't get anything out of that. we got a lot of explaining to do. Go home. You know, it's kind of this whole thing with dad. Got a better idea. Let's sell him. That way we get the profit. <clears throat> if we kill him, we don't get anything. We sell him. We get money. Right? We can go into town, have a good time. They sell their brother as a slave. There's a group of people, a group of slave traders on their way to Egypt. They sell, Joseph, they sell their brother, take the coat, <clears throat> Kill an animal, put the blood on the coke, go home and tell dad he must have died. Scoreboard? You got that item on the scoreboard? Sold as a slave by your siblings. Uh, my guess is you'd put that on your scoreboard, don't you think? 
Joseph gets to Egypt and winds up being purchased by the second in command, kind of Pharaoh's right-hand man. His name is Potiphar. And uh, God is with Joseph, we read, just like God is with us. That's Emmanuel, Christmas, right? God is with us. God's with Joseph. And as the years go by, it's not a couple days, guys. Years go by. Joseph's got to learn the language, right? Joseph's living in a foreign country. But eventually, Joseph rises to the top until he is Potiphar's right-hand man. Everything is under Joseph's control because kind of whatever Joseph touches turns to gold. Mrs. Potiphar takes a liking to this strapping young Hebrew guy, and she begins to set the stage to sleep with him. So she, Potiphar's away. She kind of calls him to the bedroom, do this thing. And Joseph comes in, and uh-oh, he must have been naive or something. She, Joseph, corner, Joseph takes off, but she grabs his coat as his coat. She is so humiliated by Joseph not wanting to sleep with her She cries rape, falsely accused of rape, scoreboard. Potiphar has no recourse. He has to have Joseph imprisoned. So Joseph is sent to prison for attempted rape of the vice president's wife. He's in jail, scoreboard. Well, eventually he's kind of doing his work in jail, and God is with him, and he rises to the top of, you know, the personnel in the jail. And eventually, you know, Pharaoh gets ticked off at two of his servants, and they get sent into prison. And uh, they each have a dream, and they're kind of, you know, depressed and discouraged. And Joseph has the duty of going around talking to the prisoners, so he goes over to these two and says, why so glum, chum? And the one says, well, we had these dreams, and, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't know what's going on. And Joseph says, well, tell me your dreams. They tell him his dreams, and the one guy, he's going to be executed. So Joseph said, well, yeah, you better have your estate in order, you. The other guy, Pharaoh's going to return you to your job. Now, we're not sure who did it or not, but one guy's getting her job back. One guy's going to the funeral home. So he, but he says to the guy who's going to get his job back, just one favor, just one favor. You don't understand. I was sold by my brothers as a slave. I was falsely accused of rape. Please, when you're in Pharaoh's presence, share my case with him. Let him know. Maybe I'll get a pardon. I'll get out. Please. The servant goes back to work for Pharaoh, and Joseph is forgotten. Scoreboard. Sold by his brothers, falsely accused by the vice president's wife, and forgotten by the servant. Scoreboard. That's pretty miserable, isn't it? I don't know what you have on your scoreboard. My guess is Joseph's is a little worse than yours. I tell you, if anybody's going to live out of the scoreboard perspective, it's going to be this guy, right? Well, as Joseph uh, is kind of spending time in prison, eventually Pharaoh has some dreams. And that jogs the servant's memory. And he says, hey, I, rem- I totally forgot. There's this guy in prison. He can interpret dreams. Pharaoh says, well, clean him up and get him in here. So Joseph comes in and he interprets the dreams. Here's basically the dreams. Okay, here's what the dreams mean, Pharaoh. We are going to experience seven years of abundance. I mean, we're going to have harvest like we've never seen before. But after the seven years of abundance, it's going to be seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, "Uh uh-oh, what should we do? Well, what you need to do, Pharaoh, you need to find a really smart guy. And you need to put him in charge of collecting 
all the produce and stuff during the seven abundant years so that you can save it and then use it during the seven famine years. That's what I would do. And Pharaoh says, that's a great plan. I don't have any people that are smarter than you. I'll give you the job. Joseph gets the job of prime minister of Egypt. His job is to collect all the grain during the harvest and then dispense it during the famine. I mean, he's risen to the top again. Oh, it gets better. During the famine years, Joseph's family experiences the famine too back in Israel. There's no food, and so the father, Joseph's dad, says, hey, go to Egypt. They got a bunch of grain down there because some really smart guy collected it during the abundant years, and go and get some. The brothers all go down to Egypt, and Joseph recognizes them as they're coming in to get food. If I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, bring out that scoreboard. The score will be settled soon. I may have overlooked Mrs. Potiphar. I may have overlooked the forgetful servant. My brothers will pay. Well, eventually they come, and Joseph reveals himself, and he doesn't take revenge. It's amazing. Eventually, he moves his whole family, all of them, down to Egypt. He gives them the best land. They settle in Goshen, where they can raise their herds. and It's an awesome story. But eventually, his dad is ready to die. And he does die. And the brothers are now scared to death. Here's what they're thinking. As long as daddy was alive, Joseph didn't make things right because he didn't want to hurt dad. But now that daddy's gone, it's going to be pretty ugly for us. So they concoct a story and they go to Joseph and lie. Here's what they say. Joseph, right before Daddy died, he called a family meeting, but he didn't invite you. And at the family meeting, he said, now after I die, you guys be sure Joseph knows that I don't want him taking revenge on you guys. So they say, Joseph, Dad, sorry, but you know, Dad said, please don't take revenge on your brothers. You know, you're in a position you could. And Joseph is heartbroken, right? And here's what he says. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. In fact, you did harm me. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. That's amazing. Is Joseph looking at the scoreboard? Is Joseph seeking to settle the score? No, Joseph says, well, you intend to harm me, and you did harm me, and my life was terrible, and you guys are the cause of a lot of it. I wouldn't be in Egypt, wouldn't have had the Potiphar's wife mess, wouldn't have been in jail. None of that if you guys hadn't sold me. No, no, no. You intended to harm me, you did harm me, but God intended it for good. And now we're all alive here in Egypt with the best land, and the line through which the Savior of the world will come is intact. You intended harm and brought harm. God intended this for good. You don't have to be afraid. I'm good. So go do that. Can you do that? That's tough, right? I'm not sure I could do that. Well, how did Joseph do it? You know, I I could just say, well, go figure it out. Uh, But... I don't trust you to do that, so I'm going to tell you how to do it. 
And, okay, I'm learning this too. I'm, I'm on the uh, student end, not, not on the actual teacher end. It's all about altered keystrokes. We need to kind of change the normal response. Altered keystrokes. So you need to picture in your head your computer keyboard. Picture in your head your iPad keyboard. All right? Picture in your head a computer keyboard. Somebody in the first service still uses a typewriter. I don't know where you get the thing fixed. Where, I, don't, I don't know, but he, well, Charles, I have, a, I have a typewriter. It doesn't work the way you said. Uh, yeah, that, well, why don't you enter into the 20th century? We'll try the 21st century soon. Let's take one century at a time. Right, anyway, altered keystroke. Think of a computer screen. Here's the first thing you have to do. Escape. Escape. How many of you have ever used the escape key? Raise your hand. When do you use the escape key? When you get stuck. I don't know about you. I can gum up the computer sometimes like beyond gumness. I mean, I'm punching key, nothing's working, right? I can't find the cursor. I got two screens, nothing's working. What are you? Escape. Sometimes I hit the escape key many times. And then I hit it with authority. I bang this escape key, right? When you're stuck, you use the escape key to stop the process. Here's when I most often use the escape key. If you have a few minutes, you know, I have a task to do, I don't want to do, uh, I go to YouTube. You ever do that? You go to YouTube, and you're going to check out for a few minutes, listen to some music, some of your favorite music. I won't tell you what I listen to. You can guess. So I go to YouTube, and after, you know, you pick a song, the song's ready to play, and you hit full screen. That way you get the full effect, right? You turn the screen away from the door so nobody can see what you're looking at, and you pretend you're working hard as you're looking at the screen. Well, after you pick, after like 10 seconds, oh, I don't want to hear this song. How do you get back to the little screen before you, you got to hit escape, right? You, in order to stop the process, you hit escape, then you go back to the little screen, then you can pick another song. You can't pick another song in full screen. You got to escape out of full screen, get the little screen, and you can change it. But in order to hit the escape key, you must admit you're stuck. If you don't admit you're stuck, you'll be stuck forever. I mean, if your keyboard's not working, you can't find the cursor, you got to hit the escape key. But until you admit you're stuck, you're not going to hit the escape key. That's kind of how it works with forgiveness and loving people, too. You've got to admit you're stuck. You've got to admit how you've done it isn't working. You've got to admit that you're a scoreboard keeper. And the whole scoreboard thing, let me just ask you, is it working thus far? Because you live through life, is keeping scoreboard, is that working for you? Well, if it's not working, you've got to hit escape, stop. But in order to hit escape, you've got to stop. You've got to recognize what you're doing is wrong. Hit escape. Secondly, you then have to hit Control-Alt-Delete. Control-Alt-Delete is my favorite command because I can gum up the thing so severely that escape doesn't work. Control-Alt-Delete means restart. In fact, for like the last 10 years, Control-Alt-Delete is actually a word. You can like look it up in the dictionary. It means restart. You're gonna, you, you, things are met. You need to restart over again. Now, why is that important? That's important because often when you go to church, Often when you talk to spiritual people, people that are religious, when you, they lie to us. And here's what they say. If you're going to live in community, you have to forgive and forget. No, you don't. No, you don't. In fact, you can't forget, can you? I can't forget. Um, if somebody wounds me, hurts me, slander, I don't forget. And if I try to forget, I remember more, Right? Forget. And so a lot of Christians somehow think, oh, you have to forgive and forget. No, you don't. God doesn't forget your sin. Wait a minute. You're counting on an omniscient God who knows everything to forget your sin in order to get you into heaven? What? He's not forgetting. 
So forgive, forgetting isn't the deal. In fact, if you try to forget, you're more likely to remember. Let me share with you an experience I had this past week to show you how this uh, trying to forget thing works. I'm driving to work on Monday, and I get this little window show up on my iPhone, and it says, voicemail, 98% full. See, all you people call me and leave, don't call me and leave me messages, all right? 98% full. So when I get here, I figure, well, I know what to do. I'll delete voicemail in case an important message comes through. So I get in, go to my office, and hit the voicemail thing, and swipe delete, swipe delete. And so I do that, and when I pick up the phone again, I know, no lie, all the voicemail messages I deleted, they all came back. Uh, true. And so I figured, okay, so I hit edit. Then I check all of them. I mean, I got like 40 of them. I check them all. It takes a long time. This it, it was my Monday morning project. Check them all. Delete all. Yes, that's me. I watch them disappear and come back. I'm, I'm thinking my phone needs an exorcism or something, right? <laughs> I now get a window. Your voicemail is 99% full. Somehow they're reproducing in there, and I can't get rid of them. I call Bob Pringle, the IT guy. Bob, I can't get rid of my voicemail. Charles, delete them. I tried that. Well, I don't have an iPhone. I can't help you. He's the IT guy. I don't know where Bob works now. So the IT guy can't help me. I go see Scardino, right? He's a, he's a tech guy. He's got an iPhone. Eric, what do I do to get rid of these? Charles, you swiped them in. I did that. Hit Ed, I did that. I can't help you. So I go back. To, I told you, Monday is my Monday morning project, right? I'm back in my, what do you do if you're stuck and don't? You Google. I Google. How do you get rid of blankety blank voicemail that you can't get rid of on your iPhone? And no help, no help. Eventually, this one guy says, the weirdest thing. Here, here's what the one says. I had the same problem. And I don't know how it works or why it works, but here's how it works. Go into airplane mode. I'm thinking, what? So I swipe up airplane mode. Delete the voicemail messages while in airplane mode. Okay. Then go out of airplane mode, and they should stay deleted. Airplane mode, edit, check them, delete them. And now I'm afraid to go out of airplane mode, right, for... Because I know these messages are stored somewhere out there. All my voice, they're out there in the cloud, somewhere in the trees, somewhere. And I know when I go back online, they're going to come back. And I very carefully close my eyes and they stayed gone. Now, I don't know how that works. But if you're stuck and you can't get rid of voicemail, that's how you do it on your iPhone. And you can send me a check <laughs> for helping exit your and delete your voicemail. Well, but before I knew the airplane mode thing, that's what it's kind of like trying to forgive and forget. You can delete it. It's coming back. You can edit, delete it. It's coming back. So what does Control-Alt-Delete mean? It means a restart. It's not forgetting. Here's what it means. How about if you restart by adding some biblical truths to what you think about that person? Because I know when somebody sins against you and they sin against you severely, and some of you people have been sinned against, you know, almost like Joseph, right? I mean, people have really wronged you, and you live with the consequences of that every day. I'm not making light of that at all. I'm not telling you to forget. But you need to add some details to what you think of the person because 
you only think negative things pretty much. And if they sin against you again, you delete anything positive and it's just negative, just negative. How about if you add these truths to what you think about them? The person that sinned against you, and I don't care how heinous it was, that person is made in the image of God just like you are. And that person is weak just like you are. And that person lives with fears and anxieties just like you do. And somehow, sinfully, that person coped with their weakness, with their fear, by sinning against you. That doesn't make the pain go away. That doesn't give them an excuse. It was still terrible. They still shouldn't have done it. I know all that's true. But you're adding truths to the picture. You're restarting by now looking at the person in a biblically accurate way. That's where it needs to start. But you'll still not be able to get rid of the scoreboard. You can hit escape all you want and admit that you're stuck. And you can control alt delete. And you can do that and try to get a restart. And you're still not going to be able to forgive without one more keystroke. You need to shift. You need to shift. Shift your perspective to God. See, it kind of works like this. Somebody sins against you, and your first thought is on your pain, right? And Joseph's first thought was on his pain. My brother sold me. Mrs. Potiphar falsely accused me. The servant forgot me. He was focused, right? He feels the pain. That's, the second step is to focus on the person that caused you the pain. But here's the reality. As long as you focus on your pain or on the person, you're never going to be able to forgive. You need to shift your perspective to God. Isn't that what Joseph did? When the brothers came, how did he live without the scoreboard? Here's what he said. You intended to harm me, and you did, but God. We need to add a but God into the situation, but God. Now, the good news is we have a whole lot more of the story than Joseph had. Joseph didn't even have the Exodus stuff. Joseph didn't have the King stuff. Joseph had nothing of the Jesus stuff. We got more of the story. We need to shift our attention from our pain. Still acknowledge it. It's real. Shift your attention from the person that caused the pain to God and realize that you and I have caused him great pain. We've lived in, in rebellion. There is suffering that we've caused. And if you want to see the suffering that you and I caused to Jesus, look at the cross. That's the suffering we caused. But Jesus willingly took that suffering so we will never taste it. Now that doesn't mean you do stupid stuff, all right? It doesn't mean you put yourself back in a situation where the person can continue to sin against you. If you're enabling the person to continue to sin, that's not helping them out. It's not helping you out. You need to escape the way you've done it, that scoreboard. Control-Alt-Delete, restart. Add biblical truths to the picture and shift your attention as best you can from your pain in the person to the gospel, the good news, that all of our suffering and pain has been taken by Jesus. All that suffering we caused, he took, and will never taste it forever and ever. That makes forgiveness possible. Never easy, but possible. Escape. Restart. Shift. That's how it works.
Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have scoreboards in our heads and in our hearts. And if we were to take a poll right now, every one of us would be able to list names and deeds just like the numbers on a scoreboard. But Lord, you remind us that as long as we're keeping score, forgiveness is going to be impossible and love impossible. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to escape the way we've been doing it as we admit that we're stuck and admit the suffering. Help us to restart by holistically looking at the person and believe what your word says about them. They live just like us. And help us to shift our attention from the pain and the perpetrator to Jesus, our Savior and our forgiver. And Lord, as we do that, would you help us to grow in community in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in our church, in our neighborhoods, as we learn better how to love and how to forgive. We pray in the name of Jesus who loves us and forgives.